Welcome back to the next episode of Three Mics and a Mixer. Alex, how was your weekend? Did you dress up any fun costumes? You know, I was my roommate, which unfortunately meant that I had to have one of those uh, fraternity stashes and a middle part. Um, so I felt like a Gen Zer, and it was not fun. And but memorable for sure. Memorable. My face is now naked because I shaved it off, and I just I feel the breeze every time there's you know wind. Alex, you look 10, 10 years younger. Okay, so fifteen. I, I yeah. like it. Well, um, ladies and gents, I am outnumbered here by gingers today because we have Neil Moore on the podcast. Neil, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing well. You know, you've contested the uh, the ginger term before with me, or maybe that's you, John. Yes. One of you debates being a ginger. Yeah. So when I was in high school, I was told that I wasn't a ginger and that I was a daywalker, and oh this my. term this term was new to me, but it meant two things, as I was told. One, I actually have a soul because as we all know, gingers don't have souls. And then two, I also can get tan. And so those are the two marks. I don't know how they determine that I have a soul, but those are the two marks that made me a daywalker, not a ginger. Uh, Neil, I've never felt so betrayed before in my life. <laughs> well, John, tonight I will be a ginger with you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So somehow daywalker sounds a little bit more sinister, like something from, uh, from uh, a zombie movie or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I I never have accepted that term, but I also haven't accepted the term ginger. Okay. Well, so I, I kind of feel like a, a fish out of water of sorts. Homeless. Looking yeah, right. yeah exactly. Lacking belonging, if well, maybe you Maybe we'll get you there by the end of this podcast. <laughs> Great. For, for the listeners at home, Neil and I work together, and um, Neil, I'm going to be calling you a daywalker from now on in front of the client. So Great. That's okay. I, I really appreciate that. Well, uh, John and I know Neil pretty intimately. We went to college together, and I actually knew Neil um, much earlier than that. We went on a retreat together right before high school and then enjoyed uh, four years of high school together. Um, let me tell you folks a little bit about Neil because he's, uh, he's fantastic. Um, Neil has been to 31 countries, but uh, was born and raised in the USA. Um, he is from Indianapolis, Indiana, the north side, and is the middle child in a family of five. He's got an older brother, Josh Moore, and a younger sister, Elizabeth Moore, also Moore. <laughs> and, uh, and he went recently, your brother's recently married. He is. Yeah. Yep. Congratulations. So he Josh. actually took his wife's last name. <laughs> really? So it's not Josh Moore anymore. It's Josh no, Palmer. No, no. Yeah. Now it's Josh Palmer. Palmer's a pretty good last name. I don't know. On the ranking of Moore versus Palmer, I feel like those are both pretty like solid last yeah, names. Yeah, both both are catchy. I think Palmer is a little cooler, to be honest. Right, because yeah. you can pretend you're related to Arnold Palmer. Exactly, exactly. Um, all right, let's keep... <laughs> before we get too sidetracked here, let's keep zipping through these fun facts. Um, Neil's an operating partner at um, the one and only Ten Oaks Group. Um, and one of his favorite places in Chicago is the Fulton Mar Market District, which is essentially his backyard, right? You're on the, the west side. Yeah, yeah. So I, I live adjacent to Fulton Market District. Um, and I, I would say I don't have a favorite restaurant yet because I'm still fairly new to the city and exploring, but go there quite often and they have amazing food opportunities there. You mentioned before the podcast that that was, it's still TBD and like the Fulton Market is a placeholder. So I, I hear there's still time to convince you that, um, uh, North Avenue beach is the best place in Chicago. Interesting. Okay. I haven't spent, um, any time there. So maybe, maybe that'll be towards the top of my list soon. We've had fierce debates with our friend Kevin Drake, actually, about the west side of Chicago versus just the north side. I will never understand those who um, enjoy the west side more than being near the beach. I just, Ouch. you can't beat the beach. That, that is fair. That is fair. But there's more to life than the beach, Alex. I don't think there is. You're, you're just living as a second class citizen, Neil. <laughs> In fact, I, I have under good authority that you do tan. And so even more, even more benefit going to the beach. Man, I've told you too much. <laughs> Okay, um, so one really a cool thing about Neil is that he has been featured on an interview on Chinese television. Neil, tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so um, studied abroad in China twice, depending on who you're talking to. Um, it wasn't China the second time. I studied in Hong Kong, and I actually believe that Hong Kong is, is separate from China, but that's a topic for another time. Um, so Get down, the Chinese are here. <laughs> so anyways, yeah, hopefully hopefully they're not censoring this. Um but anyways, the first time was in mainland China in Sichuan province. And 
Uh, for whatever reason, they saw a bunch of Americans and ended up interviewing us. And so I, in broken Chinese, only like two and a half years into studying, um, attempted to, to speak. I still haven't seen the interview, so I have no idea if I was sensical. Um, I remember I remember hearing that they were going to add subtitles. So I don't think that that does much <laughs> oh, no. justice to my Chinese speaking. So you just spent the whole time talking about how much you liked Jiaozi and Baozi. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, that's essentially dumplings. So that's curious. Um, so um, China is fantastic, um, and you can attest to that. But I know there's been a lot of controversy surrounding China recently, just because of their government. Um, tell us a little bit about the the social situation in China right now. Absolutely. So one, I will start by saying I'm by no means an expert. Um, I just am very interested in, in China. So I try to keep up as much as possible. Um, you know, I think what's been interesting <clears throat> is across the world, you've seen the rise of nationalism. And um, obviously, we've seen that a little bit in America, in Germany, in the UK, um, in Russia, and then predominantly in China as Xi Jinping has taken over power. And what's been interesting is um, they, the Chinese government has propped Xi Jinping almost up um, to the level of Mao Zedong um, and acting him as like a permanent ruler. And, and I think there's a lot of problems with that. Um, one, because there's little accountability. And then two, because it's returning China back to the state that it was back in 1949, um, with the rise of communism and, and Mao's red China. So you mentioned there's been some change. What like what are some kind of practical, quote unquote, on the ground differences that have happened, like say in the past year in China? Yeah, I, I would say a big difference is self-reliance and, and becoming a little bit more insular, which isn't necessarily bad. <clears throat> However, I feel like it's bad when um, that is to basically um, manipulate some of the existing relationships that you have with other countries. And so, you know, Deng Xiaoping was very bullish on business in China. Um, Xi Jinping has more been returning to the roots and getting rid of some business ties, some business opportunities. Um, so that's one thing. And then I would also say just the surveillance and the crackdown on the Chinese citizens, um, everything that they're doing, with the Uyghur peoples with, um, you know, internment camps and re-education facilities, um, and then lastly, going out and trying to commoditize other other regions of the world. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that that business aspect of it. If if I'm in like from a maybe a less informed onlooker, I'd be like, why why would China pass up the opportunity to like build business, build opportunities for growing wealth? Like, what what's their mo- main motivation there, and kind of some maybe some of the more anti business policies that they've implemented in the past, you know, year and a half. Yeah. I, I mean, again, you know, I'm by no means an expert. Um, one book that I read recently was by Michael Pillsbury. And so he was a Chinese advisor for several presidents, uh, most recently served under the Obama administration, but he was, he was there back with Henry Kissinger in the seventies. Um, and so he's very knowledgeable and he basically talked about, China's view of the world um, is, you know, they they call themselves a center kingdom. And so everything that they try to do goes back to this view of they want to be the dominating world power. And I think to do so, they also have to get rid of some of their ties with the U.S. um, in order to leap forward. I would imagine from the government's perspective, they're doing right by their citizens because they've got around 100 billion, not 100 billion, 1 billion people and um, the population is growing older too right so they need to be taking increasingly radical steps to maintain their economic growth such that they can support an older population in a couple decades i mean some that i've heard of and i'm sure you have more insight on some of these but their expansion into you know unethical business practices in africa um, with offshore fishing for example they they basically go around islands in the pacific and will just like totally drudge up any form of life (laughs) that they can grab and and so it, it seems like they are taking a rather um, just abrasive and um, expansive approach in every direction that they can economically to try and maintain growth for their citizens. So I, somebody who's a Chinese citizen might just say that China has their best interests in mind. Would you say that's accurate? Yes. And, and actually, um, you know, yeah, to your point, I think last time I checked, it's 
1.4 billion people, which is a fifth of the world population. So a massive country. Um, and a few of my friends that I've spoken to who are Chinese nationals and and they grew up in China and have a different perspective than I do, they, they cite that exact reason. You know, we're, we're a large country. Um, we can't really operate the same way that a democratic nation does or another country um, that institutes socialism or communism does. We have to do our own version of it. Um, and I, I think while there's some validity to that statement, um, I, I do take issue with just the lack of integrity um, and also the back scratching that happens. I mean, they have this term in, in Chinese called guanxi, which stands for the art of relationships. And so the principle is if I do something for you, you're going to do something in return, um, similar to the way that the, the mafia used to operate. And I think that's just led to a, a lot of uh, wrongdoing and lack of integrity. Alex, one of the things you mentioned earlier was the fact that like China takes a very aggressive approach um, to to getting resources. And I would say that like an observer could take that view and say, hey, America has done that too. When in terms of like neocolonialism, kind of uh, business ventures that are cross-border that take advantage of workers. And, and I'm curious if, if that criticism uh, of America and of Western countries is fair, or if there's something unique to China's approach to taking advantage of um, countries in Africa and, and things of that nature. Yeah. You know, I, I would say what China is doing is nothing new. Um, we've definitely seen this with Western countries in the past where they partitioned up Africa, went in, um, colonized it, extracted it for its resources. And, and while I think we, as a society have evolved in our perspective um, and realized that there just was so much wrong about that approach. Um, and while China isn't doing it the exact same way, I, I think China just views it very differently and doesn't necessarily view it with the lens of the same morality that I would say the U.S. does. Um, and so that's led to them then going in and Alex, to your point, taking bad um, practices with extracting resources, whether it's you know putting a, a power plant in uh, with lack of safety protocol, whether it's putting in like a hydro plant, which actually when I was there with, with our friend Mark and a few others for an engineering trip, um, we saw a big Chinese power plant that had a bunch of safety protocols that they were just ignoring. Um, and, and so I think that's really harmful for those societies. And, and while it's propping up the local economy there, and you could say that there's some benefit, I think for a long term, it's, it's very self-seeking. And, and kind of fit, you mentioned like building power plants. Help me fit this into the larger picture of like China's strategic goals. Like yes. what, what are the goals of a lot of this, like kind of developing other countries and building up ports in these, in these places? Yeah. So the Road and Belt Initiative, um, which has been Xi Jinping's kind of shining, um, shining light, if you will, for his, his reign of power. Um, that's what's led to then going into parts of Africa, parts of Asia, trying to claim land. And and their whole hypothesis and premise is they want to connect um, what used to be the, the old Silk Road. Um, and they want to do it with tech infrastructure. They want to do it with power. Um, and they, they want to bridge a gap there. And, and while that sounds great and it's very noble, and I think there, there are some good things that could happen, um, they are definitely doing it in a way that um, is making other parts of the world reliant on them. And, and I think the main reason for that is because they do want to be the world dominant power. Do, do they actually believe, though, that this Belt and Road Initiative will bring about good things for trade and commerce? Because what I've heard is that so many of these infrastructure projects are these you know, huge grand highways between two minor cities who don't need the highway. And so the, the underlying objective is to make so many African nations so indebted to China that they are will practically be you know economically enslaved to China for a very long time and and I say that you know economically but also with boots on the ground you know slavery in Africa is actually growing at an exorbitant amount oftentimes under rule of you know Chinese companies um, so yeah. I would argue you know while they are purporting to have this grand vision for what it could look like it's it could also just be about um indebting the african nations to china 
Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And I, I think uh, I think you're seeing that too, just with the way that they're propping up these economies that are completely dependent on China. And so if China were to ever leave, and I'm sure that there's been instances where they've threatened to leave, um, you know, you would wipe out an entire ecosystem within that village that these people have grown dependent on. Um, and so it's definitely not empowering local countries, uh, local environments within the Northern Africa region uh, where China is currently operating. And, and I think that's very problematic. This, this sort of behavior, though, by a nation, to your point of it being nothing new, I, I'm curious what you both think about this hypothesis. Judeo-Christian beliefs that have um, formed much of the Western world and the way that Americans now view nations interacting and behaving um, is almost necessary for societies to not totally withdraw back into nationalism because when you as an individual, you know, don't believe in a God or think that this life is all there is, then why wouldn't you want your nation to do the very best it can for itself at the expense of everyone else? Like, I don't blame a lot of the Chinese people for thinking, hey, we want the best future for us and our kids and their kids, yeah. and we want to get that at all costs. And only when you when you believe in a higher power and the, you know, the God-given humanity of every individual can you see outside your own needs as an individual and then as a nation. Absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm wondering here, Alex, to maybe push back on that, I would say that like, China's taking a playbook out of the U.S.'s hands. If we're talking about like l relaxed labor practices in Africa, one of the reasons companies expanded into China in the first place was that these special economic zones that China was like was a pioneer in had relaxed labor practices and like avoided things like unions and labor laws that would have reduced productivity. So I, I would say there's some truth in that, but there's also like China had to learn from somewhere about like how to really become a um, a world power to other nations and like they're they're copying some of the playbook from straight from the US. You know, John, I do think you bring up a good point and I think looking at this strategy with the Road and Belt initiative, it's not too dissimilar to I would say the the opioid crisis or the opioid wars that Britain uh, waged on on Hong Kong back in the day and basically making people in Hong Kong um, and the ports dependent on that drug so then they could actually usurp their control and take over. And I think I think that's a similar analogy to what China's doing in, in Northern Africa, at least, with making them dependent on energy facilities, um, power plants, clean water. And, and I think that that is only to usurp um, control and, and take over power. Is part of this expansion enabled by also stamping down the individual freedoms of your citizens? Um, because I, you know, I've heard a lot about social credit scores, surveillance systems in China um, to a very scary degree. So curious if you have more details on what's happening on the ground in China and what the motivations are. Certainly. Yeah. So for those that are listening in that don't know what the social credit score is, uh, there was this program that was piloted in Beijing called the Beijing 2020 program. And what it was, was um, basically a, a monitoring system that could use facial recognition to track people's movement, um, use phones to then look at geolocations and, and basically assess if someone was trustworthy. Um, and so all these data inputs, every time that you went to your Starbucks or the Chinese equivalent, um, or you know, went to go see a movie, um, or maybe did something a little bit more nebulous, such as you know, downloaded a movie that that you shouldn't have access to in China. Um, all of that then went into this input, and China was then able to use that to blacklist certain people, um, to revoke rights, to lower credit scores, to restrict travel, and so um, you know, while. I'm sure China would frame it as this opportunity to catch crime and crack down on people that aren't compliant with, with uh, the system. They rather use it in, in kind of a 1984 sense where they were always watching and they were actually revoking people's personal rights and, and freedom. And I'm sure some people in China are like, this is great. The person that yells on the train and is really disruptive, they're not going to be riding the train here pretty soon. But yeah. Um, have there been like examples of kind of the 
negative consequences of this that have already taken place today? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I listened to a podcast. I want to say this was a, an economist podcast a couple years back and it was interviewing a man who had a criminal record in the past, but had cleaned himself up, um, was then working and this was, so he had a criminal record before the social credit system went into effect and he was living in Beijing, working in a restaurant, um, making an honest main had reformed and then Beijing rolled or Chinese government rolled out this new program and in doing so they actually restricted his travel rights and so he could never visit his daughter who was living in Shanghai he didn't have freedom to actually leave the the fifth circle of Beijing Um, and so they, they really cracked down on his ability to move his ability to have freedom they ended up eventually revoking his ability to have a lease and so he was homeless for a bit um, it was a really tragic story, and I'm sure that there's several others that have experienced that. Do you think there's a point at which oppression becomes enough that like people in China start speaking out and actually criticizing their government? Yes. So there's actually there's a book, um, and I want I forget the title of it, but it's something like under the shadow or under the shadow of Mao's reign. And in that book, they talk about all these sub revolts that have happened in China that no one has heard about and the subversive democracy that you actually see in China. Um, and, and what's interesting is under, under Deng Xiaoping, there was kind of this two system where you knew that it was the Chinese government, which was communist, but then you had this free reign on capitalism. And so with that, you had a lot of freedom and in many ways, democracy as a Chinese citizen, especially as an expat. Um, and that sense has changed. And, and I think what's interesting is a lot of people, um, are removing their ability to function as individuals and and the Chinese government is taking that away from them. Yeah, I mean, especially because tech advances have become such that smaller revolts stand such a small chance of success because of the like government's ability to track people down. Um, one example of them completely shutting down an entire city, for example, was Shanghai. I'm not sure if you saw any of these videos during COVID, but all of the, the high rises had fences around them and everyone was uh, locked in their home for, it was like over 30 days and you couldn't even get food delivered. So people were starving in their buildings. People were jumping out of buildings. Um, and and what could be done about it? I mean, Shanghai is a, is a city of over 10 million people, right? And um, they didn't stand a chance against their government because there were enough people within the police force in the government who wanted to keep their jobs, right? And so it's it's difficult to say that um, minor um, revolts or revolutions could even take place or be successful when the government has that much power. I mean, think about Hong Kong, right? Like yeah. that, that was a whole independent nation state <laughs> that had the world watching and it totally fell. Yeah, or, or Tiananmen, you know, back in the day, back in the 80s. I, I, and maybe, I mean, there's so many ways that we could go with this, but maybe this is a broader discussion of just cancel culture and blotting out history and the, the harmful ramifications that happen when you just forget what happened in the past. And I, I, think, I think what we see in China is they do try to control the outbursts and, and the outcries from their citizens. And in so doing so, they also wipe out historical events that have happened. And so no one can learn from history. No one can look up the negatives that have happened in the past. And I, I am a little concerned with, I think, cancel culture and this idea of, of stripping away history. And I think we need to be careful as a nation in the U.S. as to how we do that. I, I'm curious. It's a very common topic nowadays to compare America and China and to say, Oh, because China's doing this, China has the upper hand. Or because oh, because America's doing this, like they have the upper hand in some future conflict. And I'm I'm curious what you think that attitude of erasing the past and almost like restricting free thought and free like and intellectualism does to China's competitive advantage in the world compared to a, a more free country like America. Mm. Well, I think if, if operating perfectly, um, you know, I would say that China would have the disadvantage, but I, I do look at our current generation and I think we've learned zero from history. I think just looking at, at our generation, right? Like I think a lot of the mistakes that we're currently facing, um, whether it's political or, or societal, um, we're not really reading our history books. We're not going back and seeing 
how things have gone poorly in the past and learning from them. Um, and, and so I, I think in a perfect system, if we actually were learning from our mistakes and, and bettering society due to, um, those learnings, then, then I think we would actually have the upper hand. But in this case, I would actually say that China is probably better off. Um, and their strategy may lead them to be the, the dominating world power. You know, here's one silly example that supports what you're saying. Uh, TikTok in the U.S. is mostly feeding the users with silly dance videos, cooking videos, whatever. In China, it's mostly feeding the, its citizens educational videos, science videos. And because there's this collective push from the government to make everyone smarter and become more upstanding citizens, they are uh, everyone has a more collectivist attitude and is developing, I guess, at a a faster rate or focus more on education, success, things like that. Um, And so it's weird because there's, there are some pros to that collectivist nature that China has versus in the U S we are not expected to have any, um, we're not expected to have any hierarchical um, allegiances, right? Not to the yep. government, not to any larger authority, not even to our own, you know, extended fam- families necessarily. And so perhaps this increases freedoms and joys within the U.S., but it also has the downside of potentially leading to the quicker demise of, of the nation, right? So yep. I would love to hear your thoughts on the pros and cons of, you know, the U.S.'s individualistic nature. Yeah, Um, I, I, and I do think there's a lot to learn from collectivism. And I, I think the idea of being a part of a larger entity is actually something that, that it's beneficial to society. And I think there is a sense, and obviously, you know, I'm pretty young here, so, um, we would have to consult with our grandparents or our our parents, but I do think back in the day, there was this general sense that you belong to something greater and whether that was your church, whether that was your neighborhood, um, whether that was maybe like a, a societal group such as like the key club or, uh, Kiwanis or, or what's that called? Um, Awana? <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but you know, there, there used to be these like greater groups that you're a part of. And I think that led to more cohesion with the U S. Um, and, and I, I do agree. I think like just looking at Silicon Valley and a lot of the things that we admire about these founders is they paved a way for themselves and social media and, and so many other things that have entered, I think the past couple decades lead more to individualism rather than collectivism. And, and I do love the way that um, America has enabled people to go and forge a new path and, and make a difference. And this whole notion of the American dream is really exciting, but I think in practicality, it's led us to a place where we've forgotten that we belong to a greater, a greater, uh, commonality and maybe like a greater family than just our own needs and our own wants. So if, if it sounds like, like collectivism is a good thing in, in small doses, um, what would you say the anecdote and not anecdote, but antidote would be to kind of the pervasive and narcissistic individualism that pervades our culture today? Yeah, I I would say it lies with empathy. And I think it lies with understanding and actually reaching outside of yourself to understand others. And then taking that empathy a step forward to actually build relationships and build community. And, And I think like community then can be changing. And I think the right type of community uh, calls people higher and actually builds people up. And, and right. I think like our faith is a testimony to that. I think in in our faith, we found tremendous community and people that actually lift us up and, and call us to something higher. Um, but you know, even outside of Christ and outside of our faith, I think that finding something, um, where you can actually establish mutual relationships and then also meet other people that, that think differently than you and, and realize that we're all working towards a common good. Um, I think that would actually work on Capitol Hill. I think that that could induce a lot of change in America. I, I wonder though, Neil, if empathy is 
the result of specific behaviors, right? Like mm. I couldn't uh, tell John like, oh, to fix your life, just be like more empathetic. I guess you could, but I wonder if empathy stems from certain, um, you know, habits or behaviors, right? One that comes to mind that I know we've talked about on the podcast is asceticism or, you know, intentionally uh, building up practices of discipline and self-control rather than just being, you know, self-seeking. I don't know if you ever watched this at, at Park Theater when we were in high school, but Pleasantville is one that I watched in English class and it's in the fifties and these two kids, um, basically everything's in black and white and everything's super boring. It's the fifties. Right. But then they find out a way to like basically sin, right. According to the, the fifties. Right. So I think they like, you know, kissed or something like that. And then something started to turn to color and the whole town over time became color as everyone learned how to, um, like go against the norm and just like pleasure themselves basically in very literal ways. Um, and so, but that led to everything turning to color. And I feel like America, mm. um, that's the mantra, right? Is if you, if you pursue joy, if you pursue pleasure, then you'll be happy. Um, and that oftentimes goes with individualism. But do you think there's any other habits, I guess, asceticism being an example that will help lead you towards being more empathetic? Mm. I mean, I don't know if this is a habit, but I would say that this is more a mindset of selflessness and putting others needs before yourself. And just thinking about, you know, there's this verse in Philippians too, that talks about like Jesus, right? And he made himself nothing so that we could have everything. And, and that idea and that model of, of him putting his life down, um, because he loved us. And, and so maybe it comes back to love and selflessness combined and maybe love plus selflessness equals empathy. Um, I'd have to think a little bit more about that, but I, I do, I do agree with, um, you know, your reticence about that Pleasantville idea. I, I, and I think like where our generation goes wrong is we think that anything that we want, um, and, and anything that we have in front of us that we should seek after. Right. So, so, Instant gratification, I think, is something that we hear all the time now. Um, and if you want something, you should get it. You should treat yourself. And and while that isn't inherently bad, I just think that it leads to this idea that um, you know we're going to always put our needs first, and and we're going to live a life that is self-seeking. And then when we have time, we can then do volunteering in the community, or maybe like give away a little bit of our money, but not until it hurts. The the breakdown of institutions by just sheer apathy in America is, is something that is terrifying. Yeah. I, uh, I binge watched YouTube compilations of kids stealing Halloween candy, uh, this year, you know, when you leave the bowl outside of your house and then within 30 seconds, all the candy is gone because the kid took it. I, I feel like that's a, a small, silly example of how in a broader sense, we're all just in it for ourselves now increasingly so um yeah and i'll be the first to say i would be that kid like i would take all the candy and eat it that was me growing up that still is me so so i i empathize with that kid oh uh, so you're the problem neil okay. yep i i am the problem i am the problem um so um you know, you've said several times on this podcast that you are the expert. Um, so, <laughs> so, so where are we headed, Neil? Where is the U.S. headed? Um, are we becoming more individualistic? And do you see this leading um, America down any certain path? Yeah. So my hot take, people will live in caves. People will be hunter-gatherers. And I think we're going to become cannibalists. Is this before or after the nuclear apocalypse? Before. Before. Okay. After the nuclear apocalypse, I... I'm not the expert there, but before we're definitely going to do this. <laughs> okay. Sounds like you have experience with this, uh, this whole cannibalism thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. I'm I, I took that. us to a different place. Um, oh dear. I actually, that almost brings to mind something. I'm wondering how much of this like individualistic culture is a byproduct of, mm. of like a first world comfortable life that um you know once we have all the basic needs met that when you're focusing on self-actualization you can almost focus on that too much where you you there's a enhanced narcissism to the individual oh absolutely i i think it's the greatest luxury that we have in america is to only focus on our own needs and i mean 
you know, like in the four, obviously this happens in Chicago, but in the four years that I lived in New York, I, I saw this to the extreme, right? You have the richest of the rich, um, never stepping outside of, of their comfort zone and just, you know, like engorging themselves on Michelin star meals and, and don't get me wrong. Some of that's great. Right. But like it was to the max and it just was everything that you think of when you think of conspicuous consumption, um, where these people were doing everything to make their careers better, doing everything to make their family better. Um, but never once thinking about how can I actually help the people in need in this city? Because I mean, the, the difference in the stratification between the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich, I think was like the most ridiculous I've ever seen in New York than it was in any city. Um, that totally makes sense. And it's so easy for us to say, oh, the, the, you know, there's the rich people over there who are doing this, but I'm sure by so many standards, we, in our community, Park Community Church is extremely wealthy. Um, I mean, what habits should we institute in our lives to not fall prey to this, you know, very hedonistic self-pleasure, uh, way of life, both in terms of giving service, like what rhythms do you think, um, are important to institute as a Christian? Yeah. You know, I, my first thought is, and, and when I first started working and, you know, was fresh out of college, didn't have a ton of money. Um, one temptation that I had and, and one of my mentors, um, helped curb this was, I just was like, all right, I'm just going to wait. I'm going to save up. And then when I have more money in the bank, I can start giving. Um, and he recommended, he's like, start giving now when you're poor, because then when you have a lot of money, you're going to institute that habit. Um, and it'll almost be like this impulsive practice that you continue hopefully. Um, and, and so I think that's like one recommendation that I would have, even if you're not making a ton of money, just start the practice of giving now so that, you know, w when you have more money in the future, um, that's just instinctual. And then I also think that, um, you know, I, I think of the three different T's time, talent, and treasure. I feel like all three of those should be in service of doing something outside of yourself to serve the community that you're in and to serve those that are in need. Um, and so that could look like just volunteering your time to help out at like a mentoring group after school or maybe using your talent as a, uh, a product manager, for example, to help people that are wanting to break into that space, um, from maybe like lesser, lesser backgrounds than the one that you had, John. I, I liked what you said about like kind of building those instinctual habits now. And, and before we started taping, you were talking about Daniel Kahneman and the idea of, um, kind of the, the slower, more, um, more like thoughtful side of your brain and the more like instinctual kind of lizard brain uh, and the differences there. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman revolutionized the way that I view the world. Um, and I'm not just saying that, like it's, it's probably within the top five book list that I have. Um, and so the idea of these two different systems, um, he talks about this art connoisseur where they walk into a gallery and instantly they can tell that something's a fake and they see a Monet and they realize that it's fraudulent. And that's because they've spent years and years of training their second system or using their second system rather to train their system one. And so system one is more impulsive, uh, more just like an instinct that you have. And system two is a slower acting one. And I know you mentioned this earlier where you have to spend a ton of time and discipline it and you think very heavily, you take um, a very methodical approach to making decisions. And as you train system two, it actually reinforces system one. And so I think an analogy would be also to our impulses as consumers, um, and then more largely our impulses as, as fallen human beings. And I think like in our faith view, um, just recognizing that like every person who's ever been born inherently is is depraved and, and struggles and knowing that as you walk um, a new life like once you've been born again and you're walking in the spirit um, over time god makes you more like himself and and by doing so then changes your impulses changes your desires and your wants 
So what I'm hearing is system one is essentially muscle memory. Like to summarize, exactly. it's, it's the things that you do instinctually and you don't really have to think about it. System two is the areas in your life in which you are still really, uh, you're not operating on autopilot. You have to be zoned in developing what you're doing. Is that, is that right? Exactly. Yep. Okay. What that makes me think of is this idea of building neural pathways in the brain, right? So the more you do a specific action or behavior that leads to dopamine hits, the more your brain is building highways between those two, you know, systems. And so people who are uh, young individuals will oftentimes say, oh, I don't need to, you know, read the Bible or do this thing that I find difficult because I can always do it later. I can always just focus on uh, engaging the behaviors that are uh, most enjoyable for me now and I can develop those sacramental behaviors later. But I would almost argue the older you get, the harder it becomes to do that because you are building highways in your brain to respond well to eating out at a fancy restaurant or, um, you know, any number of behaviors that are, you know, just giving you those dopamine hits to the point where you're not fully addicted to it, but the pleasure uh, response is so strong that it's difficult to break. And so like it or not, you are building, you're always building some sort of that system one, which is the instinctual system. Um, you know, there's there's no way to not do it. It just depends on where you're focusing your attention. Would you say that's accurate? Absolutely. Yeah, and I agree. We are so habitual. And I think if, if we in our 20s, um, even earlier, like don't fight to, to build healthy habits, then um, I think we're just doing ourselves a disservice. And obviously healthy habits I do think can be built later, but it's obviously a bit, a bit harder. And I just think of, I think of my walk with Jesus, um, in parallel with like, and and there's a lot of verses that talk about this. Like I think of Hebrews 12, right. Running the race, um, that's set before you looking to the founder and perfecter of your faith, Jesus. And this idea of we're running a race and, um, treating our faith like you would discipline. Like I just was, training for a big, a big race. Um, and in order to do that, like if I were to skip a run, then I knew that I just would be hating it on the race day. Um, and so I think just building those daily habits of, um, and, and sometimes you're not going to want to wake up early and run. Similarly, you're not necessarily going to want to open up the Bible and read or, you know, go to a prayer night or spend time in, in Christian community. Sometimes that can be hard. Um, but I think, building those disciplines day out and or day in and day out pays dividends in the future. I even think about John 15 where like Jesus talks about like the being in, being in the vine and abiding in the vine mm. and about how um, like everything that you're doing is flowing from that starting place of, a gr- of like just being absorbed in the word and being foundation, being founded in Christ. Then all the things flowing from that foundation um, lead to, lead to fruit, lead to grapes. Can, can I give a hot take though, guys? You mentioned Neil, uh, one of those habits that you can build being, you know, embedded in Christian community. And one thing that I know we've talked about this on the podcast, John, I think it was a long time ago, but I almost think that we can, um, use the excuse of hanging out in Christian community to think that we are doing good. And that by oh, hanging absolutely. out with our friends from church, like I, I totally fall into this trap of like, oh, I'm hanging out with people from church. I'm, I'm building community in the kingdom, and it's it's edifying. And and really, at the end of the day, no, I'm just hanging out with my friends. Yeah. But we trick ourselves into thinking that it's like somehow actively good, not just neutral. Like, like I think hanging out with friends can be good, and it should be done, but. Most people in Chicago, including myself, will be doing that six, seven times a week where in the evenings they're just hanging out with friends, but we see it as kingdom work for some reason. Yeah. No, and I I think that that's very dangerous. I I mean, immediately I thought of Acts 8 with the great dispersion and right, like Stephen is martyred for the faith. And then ultimately right after that, there's this massive persecution and it spreads um, all of these, all of these Christians throughout all the different parts of the world. And then after that, you know, then you hear about these great missionary journeys, Paul comes into the picture. And, and I do think that like, there's this idea of the holy huddle and we use that as a great excuse to, to not live out the great commission and just shy away from actually getting involved with the community. And, and I do think that if we're not uncomfortable, we're probably not walking 
rightly in, in living out our faith. And, and obviously like, I'm not saying you should seek out discomfort, but I do think that like, if you're actually living in accordance with what God's calling you to, like it's going to be uncomfortable at times. I've seen it done well recently um, with some of my friends, um, I guess Tori, Becca and Keith and all those folks, if you're listening, like um, we have these friends in Chicago who all recently became Catholic, interestingly enough. And they um, will collectively as a group go to the park and, you know, talk to people about the gospel or go volunteer at a soup kitchen. And you can combine both. You can hang out with, friends while also doing good. And um, Neil, I'm never going to forget your analogy of the holy huddle. That's hilarious. You're just, we think we're doing something great because we're just huddled together and no, like you actually have to, you know, go out and, uh, and, and, you know, serve others. So that's a really good point. I also think about like the best, the best communities are ones moving towards shared goals. Like to talk about, Mm -hmm. you know, collectivism, like one of the, one of the missing things in America, you could probably say is a lack of, shared shared goals because as soon as you lack shared goals or lack shared mission the community suddenly becomes about oh what can i extract from this community oh what what can i like uh you know are these the 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 cool christians that i should be hanging out with and spending my time with rather than hey like what how can we effectively like move towards kingdom work together yeah yeah it's building social capital even in christian circles is like something i never thought i would be thinking about or reflecting on as a 20 something but like it, for whatever reason we still have to think about it like how how often am i showing my face at certain events how often am i engaging with certain people otherwise they'll forget i exist right like we we at least i do <laughs> have to like i i try and be strategic about who i'm interacting with and how often um, for completely self-motivated reasons. It's your lizard brain. You gotta, you gotta implement those <laughs> lizard brain. Yeah. The system one, yeah, the, system the impulse. One, gotta... You know, I, I would like to share just a quick parable. Um, if I can, it's called the parable of the fisherless fisherman. And I would, I would share this. I'm, I'm going to keep it quick. I, I promise for our listeners, but I was shared this in, in college and I think it really ties well with, with what we're discussing right now. Um, and so the way this parable goes is basically there's this guy, we'll just call him John and he's fishing. I, I feel attacked. Not all right. All right. We'll, we'll call him, we'll call him Terry. How about that? I don't know many Terry's. Um, so there's Terry and he's fishing on a pond, catches a massive fish and Terry's like, wow, like I caught this fish. Um, John who's in the boat with Terry says, wow, man, that's an awesome fish. You should go tell everyone about this fish. And so Terry gets out, walks back to his town, and is like, guys, look at this massive fish. This is so cool. And uh, and so the local town next to this town finds out about the fish that he caught. It was like, hey, like you caught a fish. That's awesome, dude. Let's send you to a conference where you can talk about how you caught this fish. And so Terry's whipped away to a conference. Terry's um, up on stage talking about this fish that he caught. Then Terry actually gets a book deal to write about how he caught a fish called the art of catching a fish. And one day Terry wakes up and realizes, you know, I've been talking about catching my fish. I've been, um, you know, whipped away to conferences. I've been writing about this, but in reality, I've only caught one fish. And he wakes up with that reality and realizes that in the midst of all this great stuff, supposedly great stuff, he got away from what he was called to do, which just was catch to fit or which was to catch fish. And I think that principle can also be applied to our faith and this idea that, you know, we can get into this comfortable zone where we've been walking with the Lord for a while and we aren't actually making disciples and we talk about theology and we have all these debates. But in reality, I think the gospel is very simple that like Jesus came to seek and save the lost and we have this amazing hope. And if we're not making a difference for Christ, then it's all in vain. Ooh, that, wow. that is great. Part of the reason why I would imagine individuals in our circles and in downtown Chicago really struggle to just keep catching fish rather than talking about catching fish is we like to think that we our unique skill sets are such that we now that we're above serving at soup kitchens and, you know, mentoring kids and things like that, but we like to be more strategic in our volunteer efforts. And so, um, I've had so many conversations with guys and I fall into this trap too of thinking, Oh, well I have these unique business skill sets. I'm going to apply them somehow. And then you just think about it and talk about it rather than just like 
showing up and doing the work. We like to be thinkers instead of doers because in our day jobs, we're primarily thinkers and we are tasking others with things like, oh, I'm helping manage a sales team. Well, tell the sales team what to do, right? So we avoid doing the actual manual labor ourselves, which is what we are called to do as Christians is labor for the kingdom. But we like to just do tasking instead. I know I fall into that trap at least. And I would imagine a lot of our community does too. Yeah, and I don't think that I don't think that all of that is inherently wrong because I I understand that and I think that you know there should be Christians on boards and there should be Christians that are helping advise nonprofits and doing more of that strategic work and if God's given you that that gifting then I feel like you shouldn't shy away from it but I agree Alex like it shouldn't be an absence of actually just doing the work and and building relationships and I I think I think it's as simple as just going out establishing meaningful relationships with people that don't come from your same faith background. And then in that, you know, seeing if they're open to hearing the gospel. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think on that note, we can uh, move to the soapbox. So right. you, you thought you were done, Neil, but you're, we're not going to let you off the hook yet. We're going to give you a soapbox and we'll, you'll have 30 seconds to talk about something that you have a unique take on. I'm sure everyone's brain is reeling from just all the deep, concepts you've been throwing at us so one more and we'll just we'll try and process through perfect all right i got it louisiana should not be a part of the u.s wow okay tell us why well i mean there's so many there's so many things that i could share but first of all have you heard coach o speak can you understand the man who is coach O? Case in point, he's the L- or he was the LSU football coach, but you probably didn't even understand his name when he said it because he's just so illegible. And I would say that two other people that I know from Louisiana are pretty difficult to understand. So I'm taking a sample size of three and extrapolating it and just saying that I just can't understand a word that they say. Discriminating against dialects? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. <laughs> but then let's also talk about just the bio. Or the bayou. Well, we wouldn't have Cajun food without the bayou, right? It's, it is truly such a staple of America. Right, food. right. But, but it is it is swamp territory, right? Yeah. And so I feel like you could totally make the case where we could just annex everyone onto an <laughs> island. I'm, I, I'm, less, I'm less interested in understanding why to get rid of Louisiana and more how are we going to make this work, you know? Yeah, let's, let's talk practical dollars and cents here. Are we say like giving Louisiana back to the French? Yes. Yeah. The, the Louisiana purchase was a great purchase, right? We got some other stuff with it. Now let's just give Louisiana back. <laughs> um, and, and I think what we could do is we could probably like look at the bio or bio. I can't even pronounce that. And then we could just, you know, like sanction off a little bit of land and then allow people to either become a part of the U S or go become a part of this new country called Louisiana. <laughs> you know what, folks? I'm going to cut Neil off before he severs any more ties with his uh, Louisiana friends. I'm sure you'll need to be uh, calling them after this is released to give apology statements. <laughs> you're right. You're right. All uh, three of them. <laughs> all three of them. Um, don't worry. Louisiana will be underwater shortly because of global warming. So we don't even need to worry about this in 10 years. <laughs> that was another good hot take. <laughs> Oh, well, folks, um, I think we're over time here, but Neil, it has been such a pleasure to have you on. Same here. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This is uh, the fifth podcast of the week. And let me just say, it's been the second most enjoyable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully we can publish this one online before China shuts us down. And when we do, uh, we'll share it out. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds great. All right. Thank you all and have a good week.